say, God, what are you going to, you going to speak to me this morning? Are you going to say something to me this morning? Are you going to share something with me this morning? Just a little word. So let's read these words, Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, and as a comma after that, the Apostle Paul learnt this word earlier on when the young men fell out the window and he'd gone on preaching all night. Um, and he learnt the importance of finishing quickly. Um, we don't, Paul sort of finished quite quickly, really, after a few chapters. He says, finally, but this is in the context of what he'd been saying earlier telling us about the bigger picture, the wonderful things, and how we should behave ourselves in the house of God, and how we should be submissive, and how children should obey their parents, and, and how that as a church we should be together in everything that we do. The importance of the body of Christ, and not being isolated from the body of Christ, not working separately or independently, but working as a body together. The amazing blessing and the amazing which I sense of unity that there is in working together. And I'll mention a little bit about that later. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in, the might, and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with a belt of truth buckle around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. Or some other versions say, above all, take the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Father, for this passage in particular. Lord, which is well-worn passage, but a, a unique passage in a way, because there's not another passage really like it in the New Testament. And so we pray that you will use it and speak to us by the power of your Spirit this morning, so that we may be stronger and more committed to you and your work. To be ready when we find opposition and when we find difficulties, to stand firm and to be ready for the things that you will tell us to do in Jesus' name. 
Amen. The grand old Duke of York, you thought I was going to start with Jesus, didn't you? The grand old Duke of York had 10,000 men. He marched them up to the top of the hill and marched them down again. And when they were up, they were up. And when they were down, they were down. And when they were only halfway up, they were neither up nor down. Does that sort of describe your Christian life? Does it describe the church we live in? The words have become proverbial for futile action. And sometimes we can run here and there without any sense of purpose, without any sense of readiness as a Christian for things that we face in life. They become proverbial for futile action. None of the words we read in the Bible are words that are proverbial in that sense, and neither will they be futile action, but that the means of helping us to become stronger as Christians are more ready for the things we face in this world. They're also satirical, mocking weakness. One thing that's levelled at the church is their sense of weakness sometimes and the, the inability to stand and to, to be strong in their faith. And if you do, uh, I was speaking to a Muslim some time ago and I was telling him about being a Christian and all the rest of it and um, he, said, he said, I admire your faith because you're willing to speak about the Jesus you know. And um, so there's that sense that, you know, are we actually ready with that confidence in Jesus to speak about the one we know? Is there that satirical mocking weakness about our Christianity that we're neither up nor down? We're just in a place, maybe. When we come to the Christian life, God lets us in on the battle. He doesn't preserve us. He does preserve us from so much, but God's saying, come fight with me. Come fight with me and demonstrate the strength that I've given to you as a Christian. This passage, it's headed the armour of God. Um, It's that passage which everybody says it talks about spiritual warfare. Um, Yeah, it does in a way, but, you know, Paul said, finally, be strong. That's the core of what we're going to read this morning. It's actually being strong in the Lord as a Christian. When we commit ourselves to being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're committing ourselves to war. We're committing ourselves to the battle. We're committing ourselves to an enemy who's not trying to, to get us. That's, that's not the meaning of satanic warfare. He's trying to get you. No, he's trying to cut in on you. He's trying to get you to be a weak Christian. He's trying to get you to negate the promises of God for you. He's trying to get you to say, well, I don't have any need for that at all, that crutch or that broken crutch uh, of Christianity, because that's all it is. No, it isn't. God's letting us in on the battle. Jesus has fought our foe. He's he's destroyed him. Take that. He's destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So the the battle's over, in a sense. 
It's won as far as our enemy is concerned, but the battle's still raging. That's the promise. The battle's still raging. And God lets us in on the battle to fight and to stand against those things which are opposed to God, those things that can destroy us as Christians. So those words which have a satirical mocking weakness in the old, the old rhyme, we come to words from Scripture this morning which are there to strengthen us. Finally, be strong. I'm going to approach this in a different way this morning. I'm not going to go through those things of weapons, those we've been given. And I just want to make a few comments about the passage first and about where we have been in past week. You'll notice a tension between the opening scene of Ephesians and the concluding scene. The opening's about, is the language, uh, it's about completion and victory. You know, chapter one, that, that great chapter, what God has made us in Christ. No one can take that away. No one can rob us from it. God has worked out his plan. It will come to completion. No one can stand in the way. And God is overall victorious in this mighty plan which he has. So the opening language is completion and victory. This concluding sort of passage, it's not the concluding section, but this thing speaking to the Christians at Ephesus is the language of war and the language of possession. Us having things and having things to stand and to withstand. They're the words that Paul uses. He talks about this armour, and the armour's mentioned twice. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and, and put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Further on, it says, therefore put on the full armour of God. Picture, will you, the young recruit into the army, and he turns up at the, um, where's that place you get all your equipment? What they call it? You should know. The, the what? The stores or whatever it is. So the young recruit, he turns up to go into the army and he collects his equipment. He's got it all. There's your helmet. There's your uniform. There's your coat. There's your shoes. There's your gun. You take them away. And that's what Paul is saying here. Take to yourself the whole armour of God. And so the young recruit looks and he says, well, I don't need that, and I don't need that. You can keep those. But he's been issued with all that he needs to be a soldier. So Paul says, take to yourself the whole armour of God. The whole armour, I think, is quite an important word. Take to you the whole armour of God. And I think a lot of our weaknesses as Christians is the fact that we, we pick and choose. You say, well, I get on with prayer. I get on better with prayer. I can pray. I can pray like the bilio. You know, I feel confident in prayer. But I'm not so keen on the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And uh, you, you know, might say, "Well, church is okay, but it's not for me." You know, I, I I'd just rather go when I'd like to. But Paul is saying, "Take to you yourself the whole armor of God, not just part of it." And so there's a sense of having a complete package from God. Later on, then, he says, put on the whole armour of God. So what you've been given, you then take for yourself to use. 
So there's that sense in here what God has given us. We need to come to with appreciation that God just does not give us bits and pieces in our Christian lives, but he's given us the whole armour of God. It says, above all, take the shield of faith. I'm just making a few comments now. Unless we come to this passage and the Bible and the, and the main teaching which the body of the church gives to its people, if we don't come to that with a believing heart, we shall be not taking the whole armour of God to ourselves. We'll be just picking and choosing what we want. So we need to come to it with a believing heart. But it's more than simply believing, because when it talks about faith, it's talking about a spiritual dimension. Now, as far I hear a lot of people talking about faith, and it's, and it's about the bits they believe. You know, it's the bit they believe. But faith is thought more than that. It's taking God at his word, using what he says, taking the promises of God that they mean something for us and using them in our Christian life so that we can both stand and withstand in the evil day. Faith is more, it's spiritual. Why? Because actually we're believing something which is going to give me confidence that what God has said is actually true. You know? That's why the Bible records it, because it's a whole body of truth put together by the Holy Spirit. And so is that, that confidence in believable truth. Something I can say, yes, I agree with that. And because we agree with it, we actually take it into ourselves. And it's like the young recruit into the army, you know, he's given a list of instructions to use, and the same thing comes again, doesn't it? It's picking the bits, you know that we think might be right for us, and then leaving the rest behind and not doing them. So above all, take the shield of faith. Now take hope, for example. There's a difference between just believing and faith. Because faith will take it, that means we'll take it for ourselves to use and not just believe it. Now anybody believe, lots of people believe in Jesus, you see, that's belief. But it's not actually many people, well, there are lots of people, I'm saying things that are wrong here, aren't I? But the person who takes Jesus Christ as their saviour, they've actually found something that deals with all their past, gives them so much, and I'm not going to go through the list, but gives them a future too. A future beyond the grave, beyond death. And for an example for this, we take... Hope, as a real biblical word, which is part of the faith we believe. Hope, for example, it could be an empty bubble or a mocking mirage. We've all seen those pictures of the mirage in the desert when you have a thirsty army. They see the water. Oh, how, you know, they can hardly get there because they're so weak. And when they get there, there's nothing in it. It's just a mirage. When we're talking about the hope of the Christian, there's no empty mirage, there's no mocking mirage in it. Because when it talks about life after death, when it talks about being accepted by God, as I am, with all my sins forgiven, and to spend eternity with him, not separated from him, it says that's yours. 
that's mine. That's hope, isn't it? This hope which we have is not a mocking mirage, but it's this. It's prospect of the future held as prospect in the present. It is prospect of the future held as prospect in the present. So in actual fact, what we believe now will actually come to pass in the future. You say, well, I believe in death. Of course I believe in death. When it comes to it, you've died, so you can't do anything about it. But the Christian gospel talks about what Jesus has won for us, beyond death, to stand before God, complete in him, without any of my sin, where we are welcomed into his presence to be with him for eternity. And be with him is not just an airy, fairy thing. It's committed to what God originally intended, a restoration in the earth, be fruitful and multiply, go explore my universe, take it all, what God intended for us in the beginning. What he intended for Adam was that communion, that communion with himself. There's those lovely words, and they fulfill the plan and the purpose of God. The end of Revelation, when it brings all things together, it says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, you can split that up into two bits, and it could just end up with, I will be their God. When you have the sense of higher authority, a higher thing that no one can reach or touch, and is out of our grasp, but it says the other half of that phrase is, and they will be my people. God in man, in one combined, that's what God originally intended, to have a people for himself who would enjoy him. God's purpose brought together. The hope. There's a difference in faith. Above all, taking the shield of faith. And you notice that little phrase starts with above all. I don't think it's what it actually uses here in the NIV. But it says, it's talking about this, everything we've been given for our standing in God and being strong, and it says, bubble. So Paul is setting this part as a bit of a uniqueness here, above all. The opening gambit then, be strong. What does that actually mean? Finally, be strong. It's living in this world with an advantage. Living in this world with an advantage. And I find so many people in the world, they they believe they're living at a disadvantage, you know? I thought we'd be put like this, you know? Oh, someone up there doesn't like me. He's got a big stick. Oh, I don't know why this is happening to me. Oh, I wish they wouldn't keep saying those things. And you get the sense, really, that you're living amongst the people sometimes that are living at a disadvantage, yeah? But when Paul says, finally be strong, he's saying... I want you guys to live with an advantage in this life. You've been given a tool in your hand to use. I think it was Salvation Army that had a magazine called The Sword and the Trowel. Am I right? Is that right? Yeah, Sword and the Trowel, you know. Sword in the hand and a trowel in the other. As you work, as you live, you work with a weapon in your hand. And that's not a weapon to fight with necessarily, but it's what we need to live in this world. Finally, Paul says, be strong. So you have an advantage when you take the whole armour of God. And if there's any sense of weak defence here, it's usually that we're being partially equipped. And Paul says, take to yourself the whole armour put on 
the whole armour of God. We just look at verse 12 and then I'll go into three things which I want to say. Just look at verse, these are comments in verse 12. I'll find it here. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I just want to... Bryn Jones um, wrote a thing on... Uh, I forget what it's called now, called the, the Mystery of Babylon, the mystery in the Revelation. And he describes it a bit like this. The broad front of what G- John sees in the Revelation as mystery of Babylon the Great, another great city in the Bible. You have two cities in Revelation. You have Babylon the Great and the new city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So there's two there. But this mystery, Babylon the Great, is all that is man-centred, all that is man-controlled, rather than Christ-centred and Christ-governed, all that is opposed to God. So if we take verse 12 and we say, really, what that's saying, we're living in a world where there are spiritual things going on in the world which are opposed to God, and we're living in that sort of world. Not Christ-centred, but man-centred and man-governed. But as Christians, and this is what Paul is saying, as believing people, you need to live in the world that is Christ-centred and Christ-governed. Therefore, put on the whole armour of God. If you've got a Bible, can you turn to Nehemiah 4, verse 16? Nehemiah 4, verse 16. And this story is about uh, the walls of Jerusalem being broken down. And so we're talking about the nation of Israel living in shame because they've been defeated. And we have a guy here who has a heart for God to rebuild the walls. And we come to a point here, if you look in Nehemiah 4, verse 16. And they're working on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Strange scenario. But they're doing their work with one hand and holding a weapon in the other. Why? Because as Nehemiah and his men pursued to rebuild this wall, they were going to be opposed about it. People weren't going to like it because the nation of Israel was going to regain some of its glory initially, partially, at that time. Let's read on there. Verse 18, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. But that didn't mean to say they got to put their weapons down. 
Our God will fight for us. Verse 21, so we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. You had an eight hours work schedule for a lot, yeah. <laughs> Seven hours, six hours maybe. Verse 21, so we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by day and workmen by night day, workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off their clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Even when he went for water. So... That's how God wants to picture us in his great plan. He's led us in on the battle. He's given us those things where we can learn to be strong Christians and we can learn what it is living in a world which is opposed to God where it's not Christ-centred and neither is it Christ-governed. But we're living for the kingdom of God where it's Christ-centred and christ Governed, Christ governed. So the three things that I want to draw out of this passage. The first one is understand Satan's interfering activity. Understand Satan's interfering activity. When I opened, I said that the language opened with completion and victory, and it concluded with the language of war and possession. Understand Satan's interfering activity. God is saying, I want you to possess the facts about your enemy. Every army needs to know the state of the opposition, of the one they're fighting against. They need to know where they're coming from. They need to know what their tactics are. They need to know how they can best withstand and fight their enemy. And they are given all those details. They're given how they should stand against their foe. You remember the frequent verses that we find in in the New Testament. Be not deceived. I don't want you to be ignorant because we possess the facts. We possess the facts. So when we believe what God says in his word and we believe that we actually do live in a world where there's a battle going on, we are receiving, we are possessing the facts this morning. And we may not, someone might not realise here that we live in that type of world. So I'm speaking to you this morning that you possess the facts. You possess what God has told us. Jesus was, was more than willing to share what he knew of Satan. He said he's a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. And that's true. That's what he is. It's not the person we actually shy away from. And it's not the, it's not, he's not the being that, that in our minds is a, is a, a, med, a medieval, medieval whatever you like to call him, you know, a grotesque thing or thing like that. It's that opposition to God. It's that one who wants to take Christ out of the world and he wants to take him out of your heart too. And Paul said, I want Christ to be in your hearts from the time you believe to the time you leave this world. 
Christ be in your hearts. Don't let Satan take Christ out of your hearts. And so Paul says, I want you to understand Satan's interfering activity. It's a normal part of the Christian life to know that we have an enemy. Someone that really is not trying to get us, but he wants to steer us off course from following God. He wants to take away the joy we have in God. He wants to take away the peace we have in God. He wants to take away the confidence we have in God. He wants to take away from you the fact that we, beyond this world we've got a hope. He wants to take away from you the truth that's in God's word. That's what he wants to rob us of. It's what he wants to rob the people of God and to snatch away. That was in the parable of the sower, wasn't it? He snatches the word away. He snatches it away. He snatches it away. He's snatching it away. What has he snatched away from you today? That you're totally forgiven? Has he taken that away from you this morning? That all your sins have gone, they were nailed to the tree? Has he taken it away? No. When Jesus died on the cross, he dealt with all of our sin. Don't let you take that away from you. He dealt with it completely. Possession of the facts is the most important thing about spiritual warfare, is knowing him. Jesus, but not only, Jesus did not only teach this, he modelled it. You'll find an interesting thing in the Gospels. In one Gospel you will read that God drove Jesus into the wilderness, and in another Gospel you read that Satan drove him into the wilderness. Is this a conflict between truth? No. No. Both things were right. Satan wanted him there to see if he had a stronger power, you know, and God wanted him there to show that he hadn't. Jesus went into the wilderness and uh, he was tempted by the devil and he came victorious and his strongest weapon, his strongest activity was the truth of God's word. Or truth, if you like, that's the best way to put it. It was the truth, standing on the confidence of what God had said. Understand Satan's interfering activity. There was a man who was a very strong Christian. I heard this story many years ago. And um, he, was, he was part of the church, member fully in. And one morning he came, he came out the door and there walking on the road was an injured pigeon. Ah, poor thing, he said. He picked up the pigeon, took it home. He cared for it. And the pigeon became active. And so he thought, well, I like this creature. It's not like me. I hate pigeons. I, I love them as part of God's creation, but when they poo over my garden and over my car, I tell you, <laughs> and all the rest of it, I filthy creatures they are, really. But they're God's creation, you know. He looked after this pigeon, and he thought, I like this. And he became a pigeon fancier. He joined the club. He paid the money. And gradually all of his time got taken up. He left church, went outside the church, and all his time was spent fancying pigeons. <laughs> you know? It's amazing how we can get diverted of what God wants for us. Someone I know, single person, and... Um, 
They were looking for the ideal, ideal man in their life. And um, in their mind, they had the picture of the ideal man, you know. And eventually found the ideal man, or what was thought to be the ideal man. And um, there was one problem. As a Christian, this man was married. Was it God's provision? Or was this Satan's provision? You know, when it talks about the evil schemes of the devil... He's got the right plan to get you away from God. The right plan. He'll work it out. And you know, we've got to stay on course. We've got to stay with God. Understanding Satan's interfering activity, we need possession of the facts. And that's what God does for us. He only has as much power as you give him. That's a fact. Satan only has as much power as you give him. Because one of the writers to the letter in the New Testament, he says, resist the devil and he'll go away. You know? It's as simple as that. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. Now, stop. Resisting this sort of person. No, it's what's going to get you off course as a Christian. Paul started with finally be strong, and now we have to be strong. And this is how we do it. Be strong in the Lord. In verse 10, it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That is split up into two bits. Be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power. It's like this. His strength, your strength. It's as simple as that. That's what it means. His strength, your strength. You know? If you want to say, well, how do you explain that? If you, Jesus um, said this phrase to the people. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And learn from me. And we have this image of the two oxen ploughing in the field, and they're going at the same pace, with the same strength, doing the same thing, and they're together. Now, if you get one moving, you get this irritation and this rubbing on the necks of either oxen, but it's actually, this, this, you, if you, you had to match these two animals up together so that they did the work together. And sometimes we as Christians like to go on ahead of God, go on ahead of where he wants us and where he's taking us. His strength, your strength. Yeah? Don't try to run too quickly. Let him teach you. His strength, your strength. Being yoked, being yoked to Jesus. Let him teach you. Yeah, we understand Satan's interfering activity. We need to possess the facts. So what am I going to head this at? We've had it earlier on in Ephesians, we read it in one of the earlier lessons, in chapter 5, verse 10, and it says, Find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. Do you know, his strength, your strength. If we find out what pleases, if I'm doing what pleases the Lord in my life, that will be my strength. That will be my strength. 
Find out what pleases the Lord. It talks about the breastplate of righteousness, and that's talking about those things which please the Lord. But we need to learn one, two things about righteousness. First, the righteousness is imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. And if we have any conflict between the two, we're going to be in problem. His strength, your strength. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. His strength, your strength. His strength, your strength. It talks about the breastplate of righteousness being that which covers the front and the back. And this righteousness... Part of righteousness is finding out what pleases the Lord, not only in the context of practical things which the Bible talks about, but also in the fact what pleases the Lord for my life. Not having my own plan as such, but releasing my plan to God's plan. His strength, your strength. His strength, your strength. That's what Paul's saying here. Righteousness is both imputed to us and imparted to us. When we believe in Jesus Christ as Saviour, he gives us the whole package of righteousness to perfection. That's God's gift to us through Jesus. But then he said, go out into this world, God lets us in on the battle, and he said, those things that I've given you, now you show and you use. You model in your life. But you see, we get these things round the wrong way sometimes, or we get, we get a conflict between the two because we say, oh, I failed again today. I can't go on anymore. I keep failing. I keep trying, and I keep trying. I feel so guilty inside. And so you might, but guilt comes from Satan. What God has given us imputed righteousness to perfection, and no one can take that away but Satan's trying to snatch it away. He said, you failed again, mate. You say, no, I haven't, because I'm complete in Jesus Christ. That's the full package. That's yours. But the other part of that is imparted righteousness, where what Jesus gives to us is an impartation of his own character and his own mind. He doesn't give us any more than that or anything less than that. Because it's God manifest in the flesh. He's given us all we need to live a godly life. And yes, we fail. And yes, we fail. And we fail again. And we fail again, but Paul's saying, stand, man, stand, and withstand. Just remember what I've given you, perfect and complete righteousness in Jesus. But go out. Like Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery, he said, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Take your strength from what Christ has done for you and also what you're able to do in him. The breastplate of righteousness. Find out what pleases the Lord. And what's the pos- that's the possession of the blueprint. Looking at a programme coming back on the aeroplane yesterday and it was talking about the Titanic and it was going through all the different facets of the, the ship where, where, well, was there a weakness here? Was there a weakness there? Was there a weakness there? We think the weakness is in the rivets that held the metal together. And so what did they do? They went for the blueprint. 
And they made a section of the side of the ship which is exactly according to the blueprint. And, you know, they, what they were trying to prove was the weakness of the rivets. But in actual fact, there were no weakness in the rivets. And what they ended up saying was, really, the Titanic was a good ship. But it went down due to unbelievable forces they hadn't calculated against because they, they think that they ripped the rivets aside on the site on two plates. That's why the water came in so quickly. But the thing was, they went back to the blueprint, you know, and made a test bed. Find out what pleases the Lord. Possession of the blueprint. Imputed righteousness, imparted righteousness. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty strength. His strength, your strength. That's what he wants. Finally... Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. I've got that from another letter. He says it talks, uh, it talks about having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I always thought that was, as Christians we ought to go out and be ready to speak a word for God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. But in actual fact it's not, that is included in it, but it isn't quite that. It talked about feet being shod, and it was actually referring to the footwear for the ground that they were going to walk on. And it was so that as they walked, they might get a good foothold on the ground that they were going to fight on. You see, like that. It's getting a secure footing, a secure footing as they fought. It wouldn't be any good if they were slipping and sliding around in the mud, or anything like that, or on ice. They had to have good footwear so that it gave them a firm footing as they made progress in their Christian life. That's the thought behind it. It says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. And what's this? It's the possession of God's government in your life. The possession of God's government. So three things we can possess here. The first one is possession of the facts. The second one is the possession of the blueprint. And lastly here, it's the possession of God's government. Why did Paul say, let the peace of God rule in your hearts? Because if we learnt to have peace with God, it would be like God's government is actually ruling in my life. Peace is such a wonderful thing that only is really known through Jesus Christ. The peace the peace of God which passes all understanding. So what's hidden in this then? Number one, <coughs> godliness with contentment is great gain. We can be godly and yet still be discontented in this life. That trying to grasp at something. You get to something and you want to grasp at something else and there's little peace in here. There's little satisfaction and what we have in Jesus will satisfy us completely in this life. It's the peace of God which passes all understanding. Why is it peace which passes all understanding? Because firstly, it's peace with God. I'm satisfied. If that, Jesus has dealt with that barrier. Everything that, dis, everything that dissatisfies God about my life is dealt with. So godliness with the contentment is great gain. In Hebrews 4, it spoke about God himself has spoken of his own rest from his works. 
that when he had finished the work of creation, he had instituted a day of rest, which was characterized by the peace and beauty and order that he created. God rested from his work. Now, the point that the writer of the Hebrews was saying, as God found that rest in all that he had done, he was saying to his people, now there is a rest for the people of God like that. They can be satisfied in all that God has done. And it still remains today. If you're living with discontentment in your life and dissatisfaction, there's a way beyond that. That's be contented in God. Be satisfied in him, and he will give you that rest. Peter said to the Christians, I urge you, the sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Passions of the flesh will actually war against the soul. They'll keep on warring against the soul, and you'll get no satisfaction. Passions of the flesh. Reading, as I said to you just now, about me not misunderstanding the the meaning of that verse, this is why I want to bring the original meaning that I thought it was. If there's one thing that sort of spoils a Christian's character and witness, it's a person that always seemed to be living in a conflict zone. Oh, oh, he's done it again. Oh, why do they keep saying that about me? You know, oh, I've got another bill here, look at this. Another bill, and you, you find, you keep on going, people that seem to be grasping, you find this underlying, there's something which is manifesting itself, which is a discontent, something's warring against them, you know, and there seems to be no peace. On the strongest and furthest side from what I'm talking about, there is a verse which says there's no peace to the wicked. And that's the sort of world we live in. But sometimes we can be experiencing a similar sort of style that the world is seeking, which is actually in conflict with God. And it's that rest in him which we're not actually having, a rest in Jesus. So if you're living in a conflict zone, find the zone of God's perfect peace. And why is that? Like Paul said earlier on in Ephesians, and we read it, as we were going through this passage, for he himself is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. He's the one that can bring that satisfaction because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Let the peace of God rule. Decisions you're making, family life, marriage, issues at school, issues at work, in the family, the bigger family, things that trouble you, you know, there's something which is troubling our world and that's the greenhouse thing, you know, oh, the world's going to collapse and all the rest of it. Living in a conflict zone. It says, let the peace of God rule the possession of God's government in our lives. We can have this possession of God's government in our lives, outside of all the other governing things in the world. The possession of God's government. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you again for all that you've given us in Jesus. We say thank you for giving all that we need to live godly lives. As Peter said, he's given everything for life and godliness.
and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to be possessors of the truth, possessors of those things which will enable us to walk through this world knowing your peace, your contentment, and knowing the ability to stand. Thank you, Lord, for giving us so much. Thank you for your joy and your peace. We give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have some uh, coffee now. <laughs>